0: You're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Bucken, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BG. I think at some point in our lives we've all felt anger as a social issue but not known how to help or felt powerless in the face of it. This is what Steve Davis classes as outrage to the point of paralysis. Steve discusses some practical ways that everyone can become an activist alongside some of the key themes that he wrote about in his new book undercurrents channeling outrage to spark practical activism here's that conversation thank you so much for being on the podcast today could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career please
1: yeah, well, and thank you for inviting me. And I uh, am delighted to be here today. Um, I uh, have a very kind of eclectic career, always sort of tying together, I think, social innovation uh, and uh, social impact, but also business uh, and development. I, I am currently the uh, uh, senior advisor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and I also teach in the Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business in the social innovation area. But my career has spanned many different work. I've run a very large global NGO working on health innovation. I was an early internet guy working on uh, developing digital media strategies. I was the director of social innovation at McKinsey uh, globally for a a few years. And I but interestingly started out as a human rights uh, lawyer working in China and have a deep background in China as well. So kind of have covered uh, a lot of ground. My background training is as a lawyer, um, uh, but uh, I haven't actually practiced law very often.
0: There's about a million things I want to ask about your career, but we're here to talk about your new book, Undercurrents, Channeling Outrage to Spark Practical Activism, um, which also recently won an award. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about this book, please?
1: Yeah, so uh, thank you for for mentioning it. And and, yeah, I was delighted to win the Gold Star Axiom Book Publishing Award uh, for Business Commentary. Um, yeah, So about a couple a of couple years ago, as I was both teaching at Stanford and working globally on many big issues from how do we uh, uh, work at Davos and those kind of places on climate uh, awareness to um, working a lot in communities in Africa and Asia on health innovation and and, and health cha- uh, changes in health. This is pre-pandemic. Um, I became increasingly conscious of how much uh the sort of sense of the community, whether it's my students or my colleagues or my parent, my family or uh, or our friends, were increasingly kind of despairing that the world was uh, um, going in the wrong direction and and people were getting more and more uh, frustrated and outraged and paralyzed by what they saw. And yet, um I always felt like, First of all, that paralysis isn't going to help any of us and B that there's a lot of facts that counter that idea that, in fact, there are many, uh, many, many things in the world that are much going much better if you look globally over a longer historical period of time. So I started thinking about the, that paradox that why are we you know so outraged and frustrated at the same time when so much is going okay and so wanted to address that and think about what are the currents or the trends or the megatrends that are moving in the right direction that we could maybe put our hope on hope into which we could latch onto to build our lives and careers uh, and make social impact so uh the book is uh, about that it's a bit about my story, but more it's about these five megatrends that I've identified that are actually positive, and they uh, will uh, inc- affect uh, our ability uh, to navigate uh, social development and social activism. And I think over time they can turn our outrage into optimism and into activism. So that's the gist of the book.
0: I really like this term, outrage to the point of paralysis, because I think everyone has felt that at some stage when they've been watching the news recently. And I was wondering what you thought the ordinary person could do when they're feeling this sense of helplessness.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's part of the thinking behind the book, which is that so often we celebrate or talk about you know, social activism with sort of in heroic terms. And we do a lot to the media and all of us cover, you know, brilliant social entrepreneurs that came up with the cool new idea um, and are winning prizes or, um, uh, or, you know, celebrity philanthropists or movie stars that have done something significant. And all of that's good. Or, Or in fact, people on the streets starting a movement and, 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 and you, know, screaming uh, uh, th- about change. And, and all of that's good. All of that's necessary. But the reality is the world changes more incrementally. And with smaller, uh, in, uh, with small steps, a lot of the times by people we've never see or never hear. Uh, a lot of times, people rolling up their sleeves and just adding some element of practical activism is what I call it, um, from their their skill set or from their, their 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 toolkit. And so um, I think the reality is is that we've got a little bit into there was a and you know certainly uh, the political times have shaped this. With uh, I'm in America. And so, seeing sort of the, the 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 polarization and the 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 social media messages of Donald Trump or others um, have created this sort of environment where it's mainly about. You know, saying outrageous things and then not necessarily being able to do anything, and then people started to think about you know liking or unliking something on Facebook was some form of activism, and it's not bad. I mean, you know that you're engaging enough to know that you you know have a p- point of view. But what I was suggesting then in in the book, and back to your initial question, is that uh, that given these trends, and I can walk through those in a second, but given those trends, that it, it, it gives opportunity for the so-called normal people and. And I don't know exactly what that means, but for you know, parents or teachers or you know, students or busy people that are working big day jobs already to take, you know, some element and say, that's something that speaks to me. I can do my small part. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to dedicate my full life to this. I don't have to dedicate um, you know, to ruin my career or change my career for this or whatever people perceive that you can take small steps. And that can be, and I I I, uh, talk about some of these people in my book, you know, just thinking about how maybe if you're interested in the arts, thinking about helping take arts to, you know, to to use arts as a way to reach kids who are addressing the gross inequities in the world. Or if um, and gave an example of, uh, you know, people that are thinking about their scientific interest and then applying them uh, not just to commercial opportunities, but to social opportunities. And so I think there is a lot of opportunity for uh the quote so-called normal people to to become practical activists and that's what I wrote about in the book
0: we often hear about activism kind of being like taking to the streets and having posters etc but I was wondering how new technologies are impacting activism and encouraging change
1: yeah it's it it is true that we um activism is sometimes uh to some communities or some people seen as uh not a positive or at least a bit threatening you know whether it's uh street activists that uh a lot of people um uh, who, who have changed the world over and over and over again, as we've seen in the last, uh, few years again, but at the same time, uh, create a lot of discomfort for a lot of people or even corporate activists. So corporate activism is something I've been writing and teaching about, which, you know, putting it in more of a positive spin rather than, you know, uh, an, a cranky shareholder is, is a corporate activist. And, and, um, So I do think that uh, uh, that, you know, that there's a role for that kind of voice and 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 uh, stirring things up and actually um, getting issues on the table. I I was uh, an activist, a gay activist in a in in the in the 90s and 80s when, you know, getting uh, when the protests in the streets around the lack of attention to the emerging HIV AIDS crisis was really imperative to get people's attention. But then it took people like, you know, and I was one of them, but many others who, you know, came in behind that, that kind of a first wave of, of, of protest to sit down and negotiate uh, deals, get policies changed, uh, work through uh, the many, many, many things that had to happen to address the HIV crisis, particularly in the gay community. And so those that's a that's an example. Technology is going to play a huge role in all of this more and more. And and it's actually one of the five trends I talk about in the book, that the digital and data revolution, which um, I, frankly, the social sector has been a little bit slow to pick up uh, on, uh, and for a variety of reasons. It, takes money it's complicated but my my uh thesis in the book is that this is one of those trends that um is going to is a powerful uh shaper of of social activism moving forward and is actually one of the trends that we should um, build on because um it does it gives some while while it has risks and I, I lay out some of those risks uh you know concerns about misuse of data misinformation privacy all those issues that we've got to wrestle with and mitigate that net net, it is going to be a positive impact. And and we've seen that, uh, um, in COVID that, um, it's, uh, uh, I mean, I, I I co-chair the World Health Organization's Digital Health Technical Advisory Group. And in that regard, we've seen just this a powerful amount of innovation. are using digital platforms and data tools um, uh, to um, do everything from, you know, Moik, our ability to test and trace more efficient to uh, understanding, you know, population models, et cetera. But it's also, um, you know, been very good for, you know, reaching communities that have often been underserved, um, identifying in, in, at macro levels um, neighborhoods that aren't getting uh, access to treatments or to the vaccines right now. I mean, there are so many um, ways that and it gives us the ability to um, raise our voice, target our message, uh, shape a, a global response, identify communities that have been hidden in other ways. Um, I just think, it's uh the opportunity for those interested in social activism over the next decade to jump on the digital and data bandwagon is a really good place to put your energy
0: touching on some of the things you just mentioned actually you wrote a piece for our kind of blog ambition on the fact that communities are customers and you used the example just there of healthcare to show this and um, i was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about this idea of a community approach and how it relates to activism.
1: This probably was one of the hardest chapters in the book to write because it's a kind of a, it's kind of one of those that, yeah, it's obvious, but the implications are maybe not so obvious. Um, so let, let me, it might be worthwhile to step back very quickly and say the the five trends that I wrote about, one um, I've mentioned, and I, these are in no particular order, um, is the digital and data revolution. Another is the trend in the social the social activism that is true in business and society anyway, is the trend toward uh, at least um, looking through more and more of all of our work through the lens of equity, whether it's gender equity or racial equity, that, that train has left the station in a big way. While hun- We have so much work to do, and I, I'm sure we'll have setbacks, um, but it really changes the way we think about social activism and do work in, in our field, which is exciting, positive trend in my view. A third area I talked about is the trend, I call it the pyramid to the diamond, which is the fact that the demographics of the world have changed, that we are no longer a a pyramid, that we always talk about the bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid. And we've talked about that for decades as the social demographic structure of the world. When in fact, because so many more and more people are moving out of dire poverty into the middle class, albeit sort of lower income middle class, that's a powerful trend. And so actually the world is actually less looking like a pyramid anymore, but actually looks much more socio economically, like sort of a squatty diamond, it's bigger at the bottom than the top, but it still means it has a lot of implications for the way we do social activism, because it means there are consumers that need, you know, need support and service, but they are also a market as opposed to just beneficiaries at the bottom and all sorts of ways to re-engage. Um, Another trend I talk about is the trend towards scaling up innovation that we've seen a lot of investment over the last decade in early stage, you know, social entrepreneurs, early stage research and development. But now we're actually recognizing that a lot of it's been uh, stuck in the middle of the value chain because we haven't been able to scale it up. And so a lot of effort needs to go into scaling up some of this innovation globally. That's actually what I teach at Stanford, but it's also a, a trend that you can see evidence of the way investments are working, et cetera. And then the last trend or in the it is this this idea of the community is our customer um and it's a bit of a a, a tortured maybe um a metaphor, but it's the the idea is that um, that in, if you're thinking about the way uh, a business works, you sort of obsess on your customer, and and you think about that's where value is created, that's where value is demanded, and you need uh, to sort of shape your business around that. Um, in the social activist or social uh, innovation space, I think we need to talk and think about communities more as our customers. Um, in the past, I think we've seen a huge amount, and I. I think that's beginning to happen. I mean, in part, what it means is that in the uh, world that was shaped in the post-World War II, post-colonial space um, in the 20th century, um, there were really very, uh, you know, the, the 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 global North or the Europeans and Americans and others who had a lot of capacity and and power and and capability, even even in a post-war setting, and the and the folks in the global South were really struggling. To Come out of colonialism to 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 there was very few institutions and capacity, so we did architect the global health and development uh, at least uh, structure very much the global north giving ideas and supplies and aid to the global south, and that. Worked. i mean that was very helpful and saved a lot of lives but in the last 50 60 years we've seen more and more capacity you know institutions uh have been developed there's a lot of political will and political agency in the in 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 the, those countries and that's true in communities too in our and even in the in, in europe and the us so we're seeing more and more a shift from very big supply- side driven um uh, innovation that's we push into other countries sort of whether they want it or not, or push into out from the outside into communities to saying, no, the communities have a voice, the communities have agency and they're the ones that should be in the driver's seat. And so it's in this spirit that you see things like the, you know, this idea of, um, decolonization of global health and development or, um, you know, the rejection of outside in solutions, uh, the focus on, which I talk about in the book, about human-centered and community-centered design that really builds, you know, has the communities lead um, those efforts. So um, I'm very excited about this trend. I think it's, you know, the hardest to describe and the biggest, to, to, to it will require a lot of tough changes because it means it has a lot to do with power and money and authority and how that will shift. But I, there's a lot of evidence that it is beginning to shift and that um, communities will take more and more charge of their own destinies. And our job as activists is to help them do what they want to do, not come in and tell them how to do it.
0: Absolutely. So another trend that I wanted to ask you about was this one of scaling up innovation. And I think you said that often people have the innovations that would solve social Problems that maybe lack the knowledge how to scale them or to get them off the ground. What is your advice to those people?
1: I do think that uh that's a huge problem. And we've seen, we've documented it and researched it in many ways. How many viable, uh incredible product or service or financing innovations um, have been proven to be effective, but we can't get them to the hands of the people that need them the most. Again, we saw a lot of that in COVID um, or are still seeing it. Um, Uh, And so we have a lot of work to do, Uh, but I do think there's some positive trends that suggest that there's more and more attention uh, and Reese and dollars, I mean, or funding and uh, research and funding and uh, political commitment to um, getting things to scale. Um, It's hard. (laughs) This is a class, as, as I mentioned, I teach at Stanford business school. And, you know, I think the students are always hoping that there's a fairly quick, you know, kind of a algorithm or or strategy or framework that you can just kind of power through this. And, and, and we soon learn it's kind of a slog through the work of adapting and financing and their various valleys of death between the uh, inventor garage and the last mile delivery. There's many, many um, bottlenecks that have to get sorted. But, you know, my advice is to, to take that on. And I actually specifically thank people with business, degrees and mbas have a really great opportunity to engage in this because so often that is not you know it's not you it, it isn't it's not particularly entrepreneurial i mean the ideas already have been created it's not particularly uh it but it draws on a lot of skills that uh people who have commercial backgrounds or business backgrounds are are familiar with it's you know project management um finding building the right partnerships across Uh, public, private and social sector partners uh, and maintaining those partnerships, which is is an important skill, Um, working with government and government regulators and government procurers in order to make sure that, you know, that this that has a track forward to to be used in in meaningful ways, building advocacy programs or uh, and also marketing and demand creation programs, uh, because a lot of the times the problem isn't the device, it's that we haven't created demand or haven't understood how to translate the behavior change that will be required to create that demand. So it, there's there's many, many pieces there. And I think there's a lot of great opportunity for people to work in this space, and we're seeing more of it. So we're seeing some funders and some governments really say, we're done with all these pilots. We want to see some of this get to scale. And so they're even structuring the financing of some of these projects in a way that is about building that whole value chain of, of opportunity but we're also seeing more skills being applied to it and as I mentioned it's everything from you know kind of commercialization skills to uh, negotiating skills to you know understanding the work of uh, uh, adaption. so you, a lot of times services and products as they scale up need to be adapted to or uh, to a, a particular market. and so those are all skills that we need in the social sector more and more. So I guess my advice then would be uh, if you have uh, if you have an innovation and you see it not getting to scale, um, pull on people that come out of uh, sort of industry or MBAs or others who who can who can uh, help you slog through this. What is not an easy but important slog, and also if you are interested in participating and scaling up an innovation. Think about your particular background or skill set or experience, and what what you could do to help apply that to um, solving some of these problems. We're seeing it happen. We're certainly seeing certain things get to scale quicker than they ever have before. So it's not impossible to do, but it 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 takes a lot of uh, a lot of. This is where it, it you know it no longer is about one um, enterprise or one entrepreneur doing it themselves, but but like almost in any successful scaled up commercial product, it means we'll. Get going to have to bring in many different types of people, many different types of disciplines and and multiple partners and often even let go of the innovation so somebody else can scale it up because that's how we often do it in the commercial sector as well.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because we do quite a lot of research for MBAs and there is a growing trend that they don't want to go into finance, they don't want to go into consultancy, they want to go into kind of social innovation. And that kind of leads me into my next question, which might be a bit of a weird one, but it was a it came to my mind. Do you believe that Generation Z are demanding change on a wider and more pressured scale than previous generations? Or is it just a case that kind of every generation thinks the one before them is more political and more um, into activism?
1: So I, I'm I'm a product of the '60s and '70s is when I went to school, um, and so it's hard having uh, come of age during that era of enormous amount of global change and activism and violence and all sorts of things to not recognize the historical patterns of, you know, generation after generation have to deal with the world that they are, um, you know, they've been, uh, presented, you know, they, they live in and, and, and find ways to, um, uh, create more, um, more meaningful ways to move forward. So I, I think that every generation uh, tends to take the the cross at it or the, the 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 issue that it was the issues that they're presented with, and and there's a group of people that have become great activists in that uh, era. I mean, I think of the people who rebuilt Europe, or or you know, uh, my parents' generations who fought in World War II, and then re- were part of the rebuilding of the world at that point, and that was an enormous. Um, uh, set of ways to commit one's life and it the world and then the 60s, et cetera. That said, so I, I do believe this is a, a pattern that we'll see and I've never liked um, the expression like the greatest generation and things because I think every generation can be great and we, they have to confront the challenges of their generation. That said, there is something quite distinctive happening going on right now. And I do see that as it relates to the, um, Generation Z or the the sort of the, the and and it, I think it's a broader trend, but the Generation Z is just coming of age in the middle of that trend and, and are picking up that uh, baton and running with it. So for, if and that is, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with climate that, you know, we suddenly, we don't, not suddenly by any means, but now the world is increasingly paying attention to this enormous social issue that is, um, you know, that whether you've, you know, no matter Matter how you you g- deal with it, it you know you know it's happening around you. You even the deniers know that there's something going on, and it's more existential than anything we've really uh, had. In, maybe I mean maybe except for nuclear, the threat of nuclear war, and it's uh, it's so multifaceted. And so I think that has actually triggered that. And then, you know, the sense that this, this pandemic is going to, you know, f- f- do that as well. And then also it's the sense that the world has um, uh, has truly ch- changed and we haven't caught up uh, Has is really coming through. And, you know, and, and I have a 25 year old, but, you know, the into the, the, the sort of next generation or the, the sort of the. People in their teens and 20s and even 30s today that we have to make change. And I've seen that. For, I've seen it, you know, had a front row seat to it um, in the U.S., at least uh, last year during uh, the, the the riots and the Black Lives Matter uh, and its cascading um, events that, no, it was quite interesting to see uh, corporate America. And I happened to be in meetings with the CEOs of many of the biggest companies in the US, uh, uh, you know, working through, well, what what does that mean for us? And this was no longer a, we can't ignore it at all. And it was also no longer a, you know, this is something that will pass or that, you know, this is, you know, something we just got to kind of do something, you know, kind of, uh, you could say in the past, just kind of like do something and then we can move on, but we'll feel good about it. I mean, this was like a serious set of conversations with uh, the CEOs about they've got to fundamentally change their culture, their leadership model, their governance structure, and do more to support the black community and, and, and then it, uh, DEI uh, diversity and inclusion more broadly. But to a person, everyone in that room said, part of the reason we have to do it is our employees who are 20, in their 20s, um, you know, and 30s will not permit us otherwise. So, so and that to me was an interesting signal that, and a, a re, an important reminder of how important employee voices are, but also um, that, that this was uh, in part driven by the sense that uh, Generation Z or the millennials even were not going to let this go past, that this was a, a critical issue for them. And in their work place of employment, they wanted that they were expecting their employer to do something significant. And so I do think that while maybe it is the mantle of this generation or that, you know, the, uh, probably your generation or certainly not mine to, to pick up the mantle of inequity, the mantle of climate, um, and then and and enforce uh, some serious reconsideration about the way the world works, the way companies work, um, and the way capitalism works. Um, uh, I, I whether that's that's just the, the in the, the, the historical moment, it is really, really, really infecting the way the world's going to work. And so I give a lot of hope and power to that generation to, to make the changes we need to have made.
0: That's so interesting about what you said about corporations. I never really thought about that, but it does seem that corporates kind of have to take a stance on things rather than just being silent, as they probably were maybe like even 10 years ago um, when you know, big events happened. We're kind of running out of time, but I really like leaving the podcast on kind of practical advice. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about your thoughts on practical activism and describe some examples of what this might look like for our listeners to kind of take away with them.
1: Yeah, well, practical activism was uh, this idea, again, to sort of make it more accessible and more positive and more meaningful, but also to say, you know, every single person probably has some ability or skill or idea or, um, interest or passion that if you just direct just a little bit of it toward a social issue, um, the world would change. And and so be, you know, don't think it has to be a grand gesture. It can be a small, um, a small step. And so those things can include, you know, uh, a student um, you know, spending an hour, you know, some of the obvious stuff, volunteering one hour a week, and instead of feeling they have to, you know, change their major, um, or a um uh, a, a a a business person who has financial skills, you know, finding a a nonprofit in their community that needs somebody with financial skills to help them be on their you know finance committee. Um, it it in my view, it's taking. Something you know how to do, and just pivoting it a little bit toward a social issue. Um, and and it doesn't mean at the exclusion of all other issues. So some of the examples are, in fact, what I was just mentioning, the 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 idea of of you know using your the your day job skill set, whether it be I don't know, a financial a planner or a um, a negotiator or whatever, and then identifying something in the community that you care about in your neighborhood or, or and and seeing if you can uh, sort of support that effort. It can also be an example would be um, uh, uh, people that um, are um, taking steps around uh, sustainability and 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 climate to just do one or two things and make sure that you're being consistent and visible. Um, in Bill Gates's new book, he writes about while, you know, to really get to the, the emissions, rates we're going to have to get to, there's some enormous structural changes and investments that the power of just small little things like turning off your, you know, using less water, et cetera, won't actually save the planet, but it will build on the, uh, it'll build awareness in small ways that start becoming habituated and then others see it and it'll affect other people's behavior. And so I think even finding small ways to, to keep changing things in a positive way actually have an impact. And get people out of the paralysis that we talked about earlier and make them feel more empowered to do things. And they actually have a cascading effect on awareness, on other people's behavior, on signaling that this is a matter an issue that matters to me so i would say practically speaking just pick pick something you care about um pivot a little bit of your energy toward it find a way just to spend not your life or your career necessarily if you can that's great but you know you're an hour or two a week um, helping somebody work on it and that can be from the direct line frontline volunteerism but often it's behind the scenes it's often you know it'll never be recognized you'll that may never no one will may even know you have ever done it but that to me that's where we need the world to spend more time
0: i think that's really inspiring and i love the idea that everyone can just do two hours a week and make the world a better place thank you so much for being on the podcast um honestly really inspiring and um really
1: exciting. well thank you i i, I appreciate it and, and and good luck
0: thank you so much to steve for being on the podcast If you'd like to read Steve's book, Undercurrents, Channeling Outrage to Spark Practical Activism, it's available at all good bookstores. If you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to subscribe to the Ambition podcast.